Great to be together this morning. Welcome. Uh, as Hayden said, it is uh, a great time to, uh, for us as a church to get involved in community, and uh, in particular this week, our men's and our women's uh, ministries kick up, and there's information in the bulletin. I encourage you to check that out. Um, also in the bulletin is today, right after this service, we're doing a lunch uh, to celebrate two things. Uh, one, we're celebrating um, five years of the church that we planted in 2018, Lakewood Fellowship. Uh, this, start, this started today, five years ago. Uh, and so we're going to meet in here right after this. We're just going to like pull these chairs out, pull some tables in, and have, have a time to celebrate that. And also, we'll be celebrating the launch of East Lake Fellowship, which is the second church that we're um, excited to plant um, here in a couple of weeks. It was supposed to be tonight, um, but Pastor Jared, who was going to be leading that, um, got sick over the weekend and took a COVID test, and it was positive. So it's the gift that just keeps on giving, isn't it? Um, and so, uh, so we're delaying that launch, but we're still celebrating at the lunch. Obviously, he won't be here, um, but we'll be uh, celebrating uh, just what God has been doing uh, over the last five years, both of, of the launch of Lakewood Fellowship five years ago, as well as the launch of East Lake Fellowship soon, coming soon. So uh, I want to pray for, uh, for them and for us um, as we uh, begin today. Father, thank you uh, for your faithfulness to us. Lord, as we have sung, you are good, uh, and you are righteous, and you have um, been so faithful to us. Lord, we thank you um, for the, the, as many of us remember five years ago, that that step of faith that um, the people of God took from here to go start Lakewood Fellowship. And as they left from here to begin that church five years ago, and Lord, as they've endured um, with half of their um, church uh, existence being COVID and all the things that uh, your faithfulness to them has still been seen. And so we thank you for that. And Lord, we pray uh, for Jared and his family and um, those are part of the launch team uh, that you would um, just uh, prepare them as they wait. Obviously, this is not their plan, but Lord, we trust you in that plan and we pray for healing for Jared and um, and his family as they um, prepare to launch that church. And again, Lord, we just trust you with all things. And we, we thank you that we can take steps of faith because of your faithfulness. Um, and so we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us today from your word. Uh, we pray that you would lead us and guide us and help us to have ears to hear what you want to say to us today. If you would, kind of right where you're seated, just take a moment and ask the Lord to speak to you um, from his word today. Lord, thanks that you have not left us alone. As we sung, you've given us your Holy Spirit that dwells within us. You have revealed yourself to us from your word, and you speak to us. May we hear your voice and follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as Hayden said, uh, in, over the summer we walked through Hebrews 11, and, uh, and in Hebrews 11 it's just this over and over again refrain of, by faith, by faith, by faith. And it talks about different examples of people who, who trusted God and took risks with their faith and, and, and in some ways risked it all to, to, to the Lord and, to, and followed him in that. And, uh, and today I want us to talk a little bit more about this kind of leap of faith in a sense. Why would we take a leap of faith? And I was trying to think about maybe the earliest example of, of taking that kind of leap, of, of stepping off and, and saying, okay, I'm going to trust someone. And, and why would we trust someone? And I was trying to think, I, I don't remember this because I was probably really young, uh, but I remember the first time I, my kids jumped into the water into me. I was in the pool and I was like, jump. 
And I don't remember what was going through my mind when I was two or whatever year, however old I was, but I'm, I can only imagine, I was thinking, this ground is stable. This is secure. Uh, I've only been walking for maybe a year or so, so I'm not sure how I feel about jumping into this water that is moving. And I just saw you jump in the water, and you sunk, mom and dad. And so what's going to happen to me? In this moment where we go, why, why would I do that? And the only reason I w- would do that is because the person that we're jumping to is trustworthy. That the person that we're jumping into, one, is, is able to do that. I mean, again, I don't know what my evaluation skills were like when I was two, but I'm sure I was like, well, mom and dad, they can catch me. I've seen them lift me. I've seen them move strollers. I've seen them do something. They can catch me if I jump in. They're able to do it. But also that question goes into through your mind is, are they good? Will they do it? Are they the kind of parent who goes, oh, okay, never mind, you're on your own? Or when we jump in, would they catch you? See, the only reason that we can trust, the only reason that we can take a step of faith is if the one who is going to catch us is able and is good. And this leap of faith that we are invited to take in trusting God, as we talked about all summer in Hebrews 11, today we're going to see this in, as we continue in the book of Nehemiah. If you, have your, um, if you have your Bible, you can turn with me to Nehemiah 1, but we'll have it on the screen as well. And, and what I want us to see today is, is what's interesting about Nehemiah as we continue in the story is that it's not a command to trust God, like we heard from Stephen's reading from Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lead not into your own uh, understanding. It's not a command. And it's not even like a, a, you know, a diatribe on the benefits of trusting God. And here's why you should trust God. It, it's an example of trusting God. And it's Nehemiah stepping out, in a sense, leaping in faith and putting it, risking it all and trusting God. And so uh, just a little bit of background of where we've been. Last week, we started the series in Nehemiah 1, and we said that the people of God, they are in captivity. And so the people of God, remember there's Israel and there's Judah, two kingdoms. And the people in Judah, where Jerusalem is, have now been sacked by uh, the Babylonians in 586 BC. And now it's 80 years later. And they are, Persia has taken over and the king of Persia comes in and says, okay, some of you can go back. Some of you can go back into Jerusalem and you can build the temple back up. And then, not, then a few years later, he sends Ezra. And Ezra is a priest who wants to come back and establish the law. And so, the, so Zerubbabel has come to start the temple building back up. Uh, and now the law has come back to be foundations there. And so the people of God are kind of starting to move back. And then we come to Nehemiah. And as we looked at last week, Nehemiah gets a report about how things are going. So Nehemiah is in captivity. He's in Persia, and he hears a story of what's happening in Jerusalem. And, and I want to just jump back to chapter 1, uh, verse 3, to look at this again and remind us of where we are. And so he gets a report, and this is what it says, verse 3. They said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, he hears that his city is in ruins. And we looked at his response last week. It says, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Now, here's Nehemiah. We see later he's living in the palace in Persia. He could have easily been complacent to this. 
could have heard this story about what's happening back in Jerusalem, back in the homeland. And he could have been like, yeah, it's just, it's kind of not my worry. I don't really need to mess with it. And he doesn't have to mess with it. And he goes, oh, I'm just going to let it be. But no, immediately he's sad and he mourns and he fasts and he prays. And what does he pray? He prays that God would use him for God's redemptive purposes. In fact, we read his prayer, looked at it last week. It's a beautiful prayer in chapter one. But the end is verse 11. This is the petition in his prayer. He said, oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servant to delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today, him, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And so what is he saying? He's praying for success in the way in which God wants to use him, Nehemiah, to accomplish God's purposes. So he's heard about this problem and he says, I want to be a part of the solution. And he prays, God, use me in a redemptive way here. And then he says this little thing, verse, the end of verse 11. It's almost like a, what? The prayer is ended. He says, now I was the cupbearer to the king. Now this is an interesting piece of information. I'm like, okay, that's good to know. Thank you, Nehemiah. Well, we just heard your beautiful prayer. You are the cupbearer of the king. Well, what is he saying here? What he's saying is that he has influence. That as the cupbearer of the king, that means that his job was to make sure that the king had a five-course meal every single time he sat down to eat. But not only that, that as the cupbearer to the king meant that he would taste the wine before the king, meaning making sure that nobody has poisoned the king. He was a protective layer for the king. And so the king trusts him. When he says, I'm the cupbearer to the king, he is in the inner circle, meaning that as soon as he drinks that wine, and if he doesn't fall down because he's been poisoned, then the king can drink it as well. So he is a trusted advisor. Now notice, he's not a priest like Ezra. He's not a prophet like Zechariah. He's not a governor. He is a, in many ways, a normal guy with an important job for a very volatile boss. And yet he says, I want to be used. And his prayer here is, I want to be used as cupbearer for God's redemptive purposes. Now, a lot of times in the Old Testament, we have people who will stand up against a pagan king. The pagan king says one thing, and the, and the person says, okay, I will stand up and I will not obey the pagan king. But then we also have stories like Nehemiah and Esther and others where the people of God, by faith, have to work with the pagan king to accomplish God's purposes. So there's a shrewdness here that Nehemiah has. He knows that he's one of the few people on the planet who talks to the king every single day. He knows the problem back home in Jerusalem, and he says, I want to be used of it. That's his prayer. And he's willing to risk his place of influence, his place of trust for the sake of God's redemptive purposes. Now, that's chapter one. We walked through it last week. But in chapter one, from chapter one to chapter two is four months. So four months uh, moves forward as we get to chapter two. Uh, and I want, us, I want us to see here as Nehemiah trusts God, as he's going to go before the king. And he's going to trust God in three things uh, in, in particular. He's going to trust the Lord with his sadness. We saw his deep mourning for days, his fasting for days. He's going to trust the Lord with his fear with the fear of going before a mighty and powerful king. And he's also going to trust the Lord with his plans. And so let's look at this uh, in chapter 2, uh, verse 1. 
In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now, I had not been sad in his presence. And, and so I want to stop there. Uh, so the first thing we said is that we're, we want to see Nehemiah trusting God with his sadness. Now, we already saw in chapter one that he has been mourning for days about what's happening. He has been mourning and he has been fasting and he is deeply sad about what is going on with his people. And yet, here he is serving the king. And so what does he do with his sadness? Well, first we saw he he presents it to the Lord in mourning and fasting in chapter one. And what I find um, interesting is what do we often do with our sadness? Oftentimes, when we're sad, we, we don't want to feel sad. No one wants to feel sad. And so we, we try to think about how can we mask that? We mask it oftentimes with anger or rage. We go, oh, I don't want to be sad. It's a lot easier just to be mad. And I'll pick someone to be mad at, and I'll, I'll use my sadness out of, out of a way to show anger. But that's not what Nehemiah does. He brings his sadness to the Lord. He mourns, he fasts, he trusts God with his sadness, even his deepest sadness. But secondly, what else do we do with our sadness? I think oftentimes what we do when we're sad is we just shut down. God, it's just too overwhelming. I, I turn inward, it becomes so consuming and overwhelming that I, that I just can't see beyond ourselves and we shut down. And yet notice what Nehemiah does. Remember, it's been four months The king had not noticed he was sad, and he has been sad for four months. So so what does that tell us? Not that Nehemiah stuffed his sadness because he brought it to the Lord. We see that in chapter one. But rather that he brought his sadness to the Lord and he kept serving. He kept moving forward. He kept trusting God even in his deep sadness. And I think for us, oftentimes when we're sad, there's this temptation to be like, oh, I can't, I can't worship, I can't trust, I can't pray while I'm sad. And, and there's also this temptation to think, oh, God would never call me into something that is sad. And yet, God has called Nehemiah into something that is very sad. When my kids were little, um, my mother-in-law, every time she'd take a picture of the kids, she would be like, happy, happy, like trying to get them to smile. And I think that's kind of our world right now. It's our culture Happy, happy. Everything's got to be happy, happy. But the reality is there's sadness. There's lament psalms. We bring our sadness to God. And yet, we continue to keep moving. And we keep trusting God. Even in our sadness, we trust him. And even in our sadness, we keep serving him. We keep working for God's purposes. So he takes his sadness to the Lord. And he trusts him. And he continues to do what he was faithful to do. But secondly, he trusts God with his fear. Not only his sadness, but notice what he does, uh, verse two. The king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. So after four months, the king finally notices. He says, why are you sad? In fact, literal, the Hebrew is, why is your face bad? It's like, what's wrong with your face, is what he basically says. It's like when somebody comes up, like, man, you look awful. Are you okay? I'm like, yeah, I feel fine. I think it's just me. <laughs> this is what, you know. It's, why is your face bad, he says. He says, it's sadness of heart. Now, immediately, how does Nehemiah respond? He, he responds in fear. I was very 
afraid. Why? Well, your job, Nehemiah's job, is to be the cupbearer before the king. He is meant to just engender this sense of trust and happiness, and I bring the five-course meal. And so if my cupbearer is nervous and sad, something's going on. Something is happening. Is he coming to poison me? Is something, I mean, this could have been a moment where he could say, oh, I don't trust you anymore. And so this fear is real because the king in this ancient world, especially at this point, he has all the power in the world. We can't really fathom how much power he had at this point in the ancient world. So he not only has all the power, he's erratic, as we see in his story. He goes back and forth all the time uh, in, in Ezra and Nehemiah and other books. Um, but also his response to this person who serves him probably would have been to be like, you're out. I don't trust you anymore. You have a sad face. Or probably worse and probably more likely, you're executed because you probably have a plot against the king. So this is a real fear. He is afraid before a very powerful king. And the king could have easily just said, I don't trust you anymore, you're out. And just like with sadness, I I think sometimes our, our temptation is to think, well, God would never call me into something that would be fearful. The God would never call me into something that might be scary. I mean, Nehemiah could have easily said, oh, I'm afraid here. I'm afraid of the king. Uh, So it it must not be that God wants me to say anything, or it must not be that God wants me to do anything before the king. And just like with sadness, yet this moment right here, this is real fear that he has before a very powerful king. And even when he's terrified, what does he do? He, He trusts in God. He trusts God with his fear. He knows and he trusts the one who holds the hearts of kings. He trusts the one who is in charge of all, who is the king of kings and who is the one who establishes kings. And so that's what Nehemiah does. Notice what he does. Verse three. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Let's just get that out of the way. I'm, I'm not here to do anything to you. Okay. Uh, don't worry about that. He says, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? So he presents his reason for sadness. He says, my homeland, my homeland, which by the way is in your kingship, is destroyed. It, it's, it, it needs help. So verse four, the king said to me, well, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So the king says, what are you requesting? What is it that you want? And what does Nehemiah do? What's his response? It's so quick that you almost miss it. Did you catch it? He says, so I prayed to the God of heaven. It's this instant prayer. I mean, he, he asks them out loud, out loud, what are you requesting? How much time is this prayer? That was five seconds right there, that pause. That's, if that, if like, what are you requesting? What are you doing, Nehemiah? You're bowing down and praying? No, in the moment, he says, Lord, help me. In my fear, out loud, while he's, while he's answering the king, he prays to God. This is this moment of prayer. And I think there's something here that we see in chapter one and chapter two. In chapter one, we have this beautiful prayer. 
It's beautiful. It's, oh God of heaven. It starts with this truthful adoration as we looked at last week. And then he confesses his own sin. And then we see this thanksgiving to God who is so faithful. And then he makes his request. It's a beautiful prayer. Many people have talked about what a great outline it is for prayer. And this is the kind of prayer you do when, at least in my house, like I like to do before anyone's awake. It's dark in the house and I have coffee. It's just this prayer of who is God and, and what is his faithfulness? What is he saying in his word? It's that longing to, to know and to, just to, to uh, depend upon him. But this prayer in chapter two is the, God, I'm walking into this right now. I'm afraid I need you. It's an instant prayer. And these long prayers that we see in chapter one are the groundwork that he has for these instant prayers because he knows who he's praying to. And in chapter one, we saw that his prayer is to the God who is faithful and he recounts God's faithfulness, his covenant-keeping nature with God in his own prayer. And then he talks about how God is abounding in steadfast love. He knows who God is. He's willing to jump because he knows the one who, who he jumps to is trustworthy. So he has this prayer because he knows who God is. He's willing to say that instant prayer, that God help me, I'm going in. I'm afraid, but I need you. And I think we see in Nehemiah 1 and Nehemiah 2, that both prayers are necessary. We need both. We need that prayer where we recognize who is God so that we can know in that moment of fear who we're praying to and his faithfulness to us. I don't know what uh, fears are gripping you right now, but I know the reality is it's probably a different one for each one of us. Maybe there's something God's leading into you and, and just say, I'm afraid. And that fear is real. What do we do? We bring that fear to the Lord. Just like we bring that sadness to the Lord, we bring that fear to the Lord. And so here's Nehemiah. He's trusting God in his sadness and he's trusting God in his fear. Lastly, he's trusting God with his plans. Read verse five again, look what he says. I said to the king, if it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, how long will you be gone, and will we return? And so it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And the king granted me what I asked, for the good hand of my God was upon me. Now, this story is full of God's providence. We see it all over. The fact that Nehemiah is the cupbearer to the king, that he is the kind of person who, in fact, one of the very few people who talk to the king every day. We also see that the queen is there. And again, in the ancient world, we, go, we kind of run right by that. But this tells us likely that probably no one else was there. It was probably just the king and the queen and him. And all of his officials who would have said, oh, let's talk through this real quick. And what, what are you actually playing? How does this work? I'm not sure this is a good idea, king. They weren't there. And so in this moment in God's providence, in this intimate moment with the king and the queen, he says, I'm sad because of what's going on in my homeland. And yeah, I'm afraid before you, but I'm going to trust God with that. And then he brings his plan. Now, I love this. He obviously has planned this ahead of time. He is trusting. If God says yes to this prayer, 
If God says yes to this prayer to use me for your redemptive purposes, then here's the plan. And he prays and he plans. They both go together. And I think this is important because he doesn't just come with problems. He says, send me. I've got a plan for it. And look what he asked for. It's very bold. Can you imagine going to your supervisor and saying, hey, I'd like to take a leave of absence. Okay, great. Like how long? Like 12 years, 12 years, give or take. You know, like that's about how long this would take. And then not only that, he says, I need you to write letters stamped with the king's approval that will go beyond the province that says, the king wants me to do this. And not only that, did you notice he says, um, I want you to pay for it, right? The lumber, all the lumber to, to build the, the wall, to build the, the fortress around the temple, and to build his own house. This is an audacious ask. In this moment, he's not just saying, oh, if it pleases the king, let me get this little. He just, he asked for all of it. And what's interesting is this is even more audacious because in Ezra 4, this same king actually made a decree saying he wanted the city to stop being rebuilt. In fact, I'm not going to flip there, but I'll have it on the screen. This is what the king says. Therefore, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city, Jerusalem, be not rebuilt until a decree is made by me. This is not like you went to dad and he said no, and so you go to mom and hope she says yes. This is the same king who has made a decree. Again, this is an audacious ask to come before this king and say, will you reverse the decree that you've made and send me to go do the work that God wants me to do? The king says, what are you requesting? He says, I, I want to go back. I want to rebuild the city that you've said you don't want to build anymore, and I want you to pay for it. That's his ask, his step of faith. He has a plan. He says, if God says yes, then here's my plan. I think about this for us. Like, what are we praying about? Probably lots of things. Again, probably just multiple things we could say. We're, we're praying about this, or we're praying for direction, or we're praying. And what if God said yes to what we're praying for? Are we ready? Do we have a plan for that? Say, I, I, I want to be used by God in my, in my neighborhood or my office, and, and I'm praying for that neighbor, which is fantastic. But are we thinking through, like, okay, what are we going to say to that neighbor when we have him over? Or we're like, oh, I'm praying for this family member or this friend who's, who's either walked away from the Lord or we just does not know the Lord. I really want them to come to faith in Christ. That's great. Pray diligently. But do we have a plan for what that may mean as we have conversations with that person? I think there's this dynamic here of praying and planning that goes together. He obviously is submitting to God because if God says no, then he doesn't need to bring the plan. If God says yes, then here's the plan. Let's move forward. He's praying and he's planning. He's bringing his plan before the Lord. Now, why on earth would this king say yes to this? He's already made a decree. That's going to be a lot of paperwork to undo a decree. This king doesn't want to be bothered with this. Why would he do it? Well, Nehemiah tells us. I love this last part of verse 8. And the king granted me what I asked. Look at this. For the good hand of my God was upon me. I think this is important because Nehemiah recognizes it was not the, the brilliance of his plan. It, it was not the fact that he had trust uh, and that with the king that he could ask this question. It was not that he found the perfect moment where it was just the king and the queen. Again, all of that is true. But what does he recognize? The only way this kind of thing happens is if the good hand of God is upon him. 
And so what is he trusting? He's not trusting in his plan. We make plans, but we don't trust in the plan. We trust in God and the good hand of God upon us. And so in our sorrow, whatever it is that we find ourselves sad over, yes, we bring that to the Lord. Yes, we mourn. Yes, we lament. Lament psalms are really helpful for that. We bring our sadness to the Lord, but we keep going. We keep serving. We keep playing the role that God has played us to play in the, in the redemptive purposes of God. And even in our fears, even when we're walking into a fearful moment, we just say, God, help me. But we know who we're praying to, the God who is steadfast in his love, and he is faithful to his promises. We say, that God, help me as I go in. And even in our plans, even in our worry about the future, we trust him. If God says yes to what I'm praying for, then here we go. Let's move forward. What we see in Nehemiah here is this example of, of a man, in a sense, jumping into the water because he knows that God is trustworthy. He knows that he who's going to catch him is the Lord. And he knows that the good hand of God is upon him. Therefore, he can trust. He knows this is the God who is faithful to keep promises, and he is steadfast and abounding in love. And so we trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that Nehemiah's example is in the scriptures. His beautiful prayer in the first chapter but also his willingness to risk it all in the second, to trust you with everything. And so Lord, I pray for us. Maybe it is sorrow or maybe it's fear or maybe it's worry about the future, about the plans. May we trust you with all of it. May we heed that command of Proverbs, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. May we follow the way of Nehemiah in trusting you. And Lord, now we know because of Christ and because he's come and all that we have sung of, of what Christ has done, we know without a shadow of a doubt because we, if we believe in Jesus that the good hand of God is upon us. That Jesus, his death was in our place. It's what we deserve, but he took our place. And because of that, scripture tells us we have become the righteousness of God. We have the good hand of God upon us. And so Lord, my prayer for us today is that we would know without a shadow of a doubt that the good hand of God is upon us because of the salvation we have received in Jesus, because of the forgiveness of sins, because of the eternal life that we will have with you forever. Lord, also, may that translate into every moment. May that translate into to true trust for you every step of the way. And so, Lord, we thank you that we can declare the truth over us. The good hand of God is upon us because of Jesus, his life and his death and his resurrection on our behalf. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.